Good morning, friends. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. If you have one of the church Bibles, that's page 547. 547. As Jeff said, my name is Tom Hallman. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church. And I want to start by telling you that I really love this church. I really do. I love our worship services. I love the people that come to them. I really love my growth group. I love our church principles. Uh, Just from top to bottom, I just love what God is doing in this church and through this church. And uh, I contrast that with a church that I attended growing up that I did not at all love. Uh, When I was younger, some of my earliest memories of going to a church revolve around a church uh, in which there were a very great number of traditions. There were a lot of things throughout the, 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 the Sunday morning service where you were expected to sit, stand, kneel, repeat, sing, and it was the same things every week. And uh, I, I remember being confused as to how you were supposed to know what came next. So at one point, I, I turned to my mom and I asked her, how do you know what to say and do at any given time? And her reply to me, I'll never forget, she said, you just do. Not very helpful. I love you, Mom. Uh, I suspect that those traditions, those ways of operating every Sunday morning, were set up by some very wise people in order to help people like me know Jesus more. Unfortunately, in that church, they actually kept me from understanding Jesus more. Then, many years later, I attended... uh, another church as a teenager and at that point as a card-carrying atheist. And I went to this church only because uh, my mom really wanted me to come to church with her. I love you, Mom. And so I came. I went to this church for some time. And in that church, there was a tradition such that if you attended that church for a certain amount of time and you were a certain age, then they would expect you to go through something they called confirmation. And in, in that church, that meant you got a sponsor, some other church member, you took some classes, and you were then declared an official Christian or something up front some weeks later. And so I did what they told me to, because I wanted to make my mom happy. And so I got a sponsor. I went to the classes. I did all this stuff. And at one point, I felt a little you know, guilty about what was going on. So I said to my sponsor, hey, just so you know, I don't believe in Jesus. But three weeks later, I was standing up front with all the other people who, for all I know, were just as much atheists and far from God as I was. And we all said, repeated some stuff, and now we were Christians. I'm sure that for all the families that were there that week, looking at us standing up front, we all looked really good. We were all decked out in our nicest outfits. And that confirmation program looked really good. And that church looked really good. But friends, not one of those things was actually really good. The church, the class, and I were all horribly broken. But no one knew it, or at least no one cared. Because, hey, at least we kept to our traditions. Today, friends, we're going to take a look at Jesus' response to some men who were very passionate about tradition and had a very big problem with Jesus. Several problems, actually, and that's The first point in our outline we're going to look at right now. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, to find out 
what these people thought the problem with Jesus was. Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions <coughs> that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? We'll pause there. <clears throat> this point in your outline is called the problem, the problems with Jesus. And there is, of course, no actual problem with Jesus. But these Pharisees and the scribes that came from Jerusalem would not agree with that assertion. And in fact, they were watching Jesus and his disciples carefully to see at what point they might slip up. And sure enough, they notice something that bothers them a good bit. Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. And this isn't a matter of, of getting rid of all the you know, bacteria that are on your hands so you don't get sick. They were more concerned that, that by not washing their hands, they were therefore unclean and not honoring God as they should. And in Pharisee speak, this constitutes defilement. See, Jesus' disciples had defiled hands. So the Pharisees' logic goes, and the defiled hands would touch food, which then defiles the food, and then goes into their mouths, which defiles them, which makes them then unpleasing to God. <clears throat> or so their logic goes. But that was only part of the problem they had with Jesus, because not only are the disciples eating with defiled hands, but they're not walking according to the tradition of the elders. That is the other problem they have, and... In case you're wondering what they're even talking about, Mark told us in verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. Okay, so here's what's most likely took place, okay? The, some long time ago, some Jewish leaders were sitting around thinking, we want to honor God as much as we possibly can. Now, God commands that priests would wash before they would go into the tabernacle to serve before the Lord. And so there, and the priests are really, really holy, right? So if we want to be holy and honor God in the same way, then we too should wash before God. And so what they would start doing is washing before all kinds of religious rituals, just like the priests did. And, you know, what good for them? They wanted to go above and beyond. They, they knew what God's command was, and they wanted to serve God even more. That's great. But then what had happened is they said, well, if we wash before all the, you know, the, the religious rituals, well, we should, we should do even more than that. Let's be even holier. So let's wash before every meal. And again, that can be great. Good for you. The problem happens when they then start to make this matter of not only personal piety, but rules for everybody else. And so also there's these traditions that that, that say you've got to wash your hands, and, and Mark even noted that you have to wash the cups and the plates and even the dining couches. Isn't that funny? I love that one. I, th I think Mark probably put that in there as something of, of like a jab at the Pharisees, because like, you, you understand the things you're like drinking with that goes in your body, but then they're like washing like your, your seat cushions before you, you eat. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like, hey, Pharisees, why don't you just go ahead and wash your seats before you eat and maybe do your hair, too, and, and you, should probably, you should probably wash your smartphone because, you know, it might have gotten defiled somehow. You know, and so I think Mark puts that in as a little joke. But the point of all this is that 
at some point, they, they raised the, the, the bar here to say, not only do you have to you know, be holy if you're a priest, but you must wash before meals or you're defiled. But God didn't say that. They did. It's a tradition. But they start holding other people to it. They start making that at, at the highest level of importance. God's word and our traditions, just like this, right? So that's the situation where Jesus' disciples find themselves, even though they were doing no wrong biblically before God by eating with the unwashed hands, the Pharisees were offended by it because it wasn't their tradition. And because Jesus did not intervene to enforce the traditions, the problems that that, that, uh, the Pharisees have with Jesus' disciples rest on Jesus himself. They say, why do your disciples, your disciples, not wash according to, to the tradition of the elders? So let's recap. Here are the two problems the Pharisees have with Jesus, both of which are expressed in their question in verse 5. First, Jesus' disciples are not walking according to the tradition of the elders. Second, Jesus' disciples are defiling themselves by eating with unwashed hands. That's the two problems that the Pharisees have with Jesus. And Jesus is going to spend the rest of his time in this passage, and we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, responding to those two problems. And as he often does, Jesus turns the entire argument on its head and shows why they're really not viewing this rightly at all. So, next point in your outline, the problems with tradition. The problem with tradition is verse 6. We're going to pick up right where we left off through verse 13. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of men, the commandment of God, and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Remember, the first accusation that Jesus is addressing here is that Jesus' disciples are not walking according to the tradition of the elders. So Jesus begins his rebuttal to that by calling the Pharisees hypocrites and quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. Now, in the, in the original context of Isaiah, this, this quote packs a tremendous punch. Because listen, listen to what Isaiah 29, this is Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. Listen to what this says. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, that's the part he quoted. Here's the, here's the rest of what that says. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things to this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Jesus here is saying to the Pharisees and scribes that even though they think they're being really wise and discerning in how they're honoring God outwardly, they've actually become foolish and lack proper discernment. Though the Pharisees are eager to honor God outwardly and look holy outwardly and even wash their hands and cups and dining couches outwardly, their hearts are actually far, far from God. 
So God, speaking through Isaiah, says that rather than the Pharisees considering God and his commandments as the things to be obeyed and feared, they are far more interested with the commandments taught by men. They are not obsessed with what God thinks, but rather what their elders think. They're looking around and wondering, are we doing this okay? We all good? We holy? All right, good. That's their stance. And then Jesus states this very plainly in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. In other words, they aren't saying, I want a little of God's commandments and a little bit of our traditions. Jesus is saying they have left. They've left God's commandments way over there. And they are holding to, they've gone to men's traditions. That's how they're judging holiness and what is right. And lest he be misunderstood, Jesus then gives an example. He wants to make, he wants to flesh this out. He wants, he wants to say, look, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Case study right here. And he uses the example of caring for parents. By quoting from Exodus chapters 20 and 21, he observes that, that God makes it really, really, really clear that children are to honor their parents. No doubt about that. God commands that. And here's the problem. The Pharisees enforce some additional rules in regard to caring for parents. So Jesus gives the example of someone who, in his zeal to honor God, says that some form of honor, or, or often, you know, that would be money, or something that should have gone to his parents is instead going to God. In that case, the Pharisees say he is bound by it and can no longer help his parents, even if he wants to. So, perhaps a modern equivalent, to bring this into our, our context, might be to assume that, that near, years from now, my mom comes and lives with me, because she uh, is unable to care for herself in her old age. You know, many, many years from now. Yeah, yeah, a long time. Um, then one day, as my mom is living with me in our house, I attend a missions conference, and it's phenomenal. And I really see what God is doing among the nations. And I get really excited about that. Okay, so I come home, and I say to my wife, Allie, I say, Allie, God is just at work here in a big way, and I want to be part of it. So let's sell our house and buy a house that is smaller, and the difference in price between those two houses, let's give it to, to missions. Let's just live in the tiniest place we can get and just give all the proceeds to God. Now, my mom would protest and say, well, wait a minute, there's not going to be any room for me. And I'll say, I'm sorry, Mom. This is for the nations. This is for God. I want to be as holy as possible. I'm sure you understand. And so I list, <clears throat> excuse me, I list the house on the market, and I wait. Now, shortly thereafter, I'm perhaps studying God's word, having my quiet time, uh, Emma and I are reading through the Bible together, and we get to Exodus 20, and we say, wait a minute, this is to honor my, my mo mother and father, and if I don't honor them, I even have to die. Like, this is really severe. So what I, I then do is, is I say, I, I've made a mistake. And so I go back to my realtor, and I say, listen, I, I, was, I was too rash. Missions are great, but I'm, I'm going to maybe try to get a raise, work harder, and then I'll give that proceeds. What I'm doing to my mom is not right. And at that moment... The Pharisees come bursting in the door. Maybe, maybe some church leaders come like parachuting in and say, hold on right there. You can't do that. You made a commitment to God. That's Corbin. You dedicated that to God. It is off limits and you can't touch it. And I'm like, but my mom's going to be out in the cold. I mean, it's not cold yet, but it probably will eventually get cold in State College sometime this winter. I can't do that to her. And they say, it's too bad. You have to follow the traditions. That's, that's what... This is what's at stake here. And Jesus, Jesus summarizes this. He says, this, what you're doing, is making void the word of God. You write a check and then you write void on it. It's useless. 
You're making useless the word of God for the sake of traditions which are not of God to begin with. You've taken, you've gone from like, hey, let's be holier and holier and holier to, you know what? What we, what we think, here's what God thinks, it doesn't matter. Our stuff trumps God's stuff. And so that's why we see Jesus calling them hypocrites. Though they accuse Jesus' disciples right here of violating rules that dishonor God, Jesus observes that it's those very rules that keep men from honoring God. You flipped it all upside down. It's all backwards. And this is just one instance, Jesus says. He says, you do many things like that. Many such things you do. Okay. So what does all that mean? What do, what do, we, what do we do with this? First off, let me clarify that Jesus is not saying that traditions are inherently bad. Okay? It's not bad to have holiday traditions. Many of you probably did that in the past week. It's not bad to have family come over and do the same things and watch the same movies and have the same tree and ornaments and all that. That's not bad. Jesus never says or implies that traditions are inherently bad. But there is a danger in tradition, a problem that we can easily fall prey to. Here it is. The problem with tradition is that it can make us look good even when we're not. The problem with tradition is it can make us look holy even if we're not. And so we love traditions, right? And we develop traditions because everything just looks so good. Everything looks great when the family is all gathered around and sharing and, and talking and doing the same things you do every year and you think, oh, everything's right in the world. But it may not actually be the case, right? Over time, we might even forget why we started the traditions. We, we keep doing them because they look good, but they may have actually replaced what God has said. And the worst part, friends, is that we may not even realize it's happened. I suspect that every one of those traditions at those churches I went to as a kid were set up in order to honor God and care for his people. I mean, who, who starts a church just to make people's lives ruined? No, they wanted to do the most holy, wonderful things for God's people, no doubt. But somewhere along the lines, people started caring more about the traditions than the God on whom those traditions were based. And so I suspect that hundreds and thousands of kids went through those churches as atheists, just like I did, and then they left just as much atheists who are now convinced that they were right with God. That is tragic. The first accusation that the Pharisees raised is that Jesus' disciples were not walking according to the tradition of the elders. Jesus' response is that his disciples are not trying to. He's asking them to walk according to something far, far greater. He's asking them to walk according to God's commandments instead. And that's Jesus' point here. Failure to obey men's traditions doesn't defile you. It's failure to obey God's commandments that defiles you. Or said another way, God's commandments must always trump men's traditions. So how do we apply this? What does this mean for us at Grace Fellowship Church? How do we avoid this error of the Pharisees in making much of tradition at the expense of God's commandments? Our first thought might be to eliminate traditions altogether. Because if you don't have to worry about them at all, then problem solved. You just live according to God's word and pray to God. The problem is it's not really feasible. Anything can be a tradition, right? Like, we have a tradition right now. I'm preaching God's word from up front on a Sunday morning. That's a tradition. The Bible doesn't say you have to do that. We sang some songs, as we do every week. We don't have to do that. 
These are traditions, but we, we think they're good things here at Grace Fellowship, and we want to keep doing them. So getting rid of traditions is, is, is impossible, and it's probably not even a good idea. But let me suggest several alternatives, other, other applications for us. First, as a church, this is a church-wide thing, we focus on God's Word. If, if you even did just a cursory, uh, if, if you were like zoning half the time that Jeff was talking this morning, you still would have caught that he said the term God's Word like 20 times. Why did he do that? Did he run out of other things to say? No. It's because we value it so much here at Grace Fellowship, and we want to talk about it and emphasize it and read it and study it and, and preach it every single week. And the moment we stop considering what God's Word says, we'll start replacing it with something else. We'll, we'll have somewhat new idea or new teaching or book or technology or system or some tradition, right? That's why we preach through God's, work week, God's Word week after week here at Grace Fellowship, usually book by book, verse by verse. That helps guard us against just talking about the things that, that we're particularly excited about at the time. And it, and it forces us to wrestle with the full counsel of God's word and his commandments, even at the expense of our cherished traditions. That's why we do that. So that's our first application, and we're going to keep doing that here at Grace Fellowship. If you don't like it, you're not going to like this church. Second, as a church, let's celebrate the diversity of the body of Christ. We are one body with many parts, and that means that, that what one part of the body may say or do might sound really weird to another part of the body, okay? Because God didn't make us just to be ears or eyes or arms or whatever in the body. Uh, we're, we're not all the same. We're all different and work together. But sometimes the thing an ear does seems really weird to a left toe, you know, doesn't it? Like, you're hearing? Well, that's weird. Don't, don't people step on you? And the ear says, I hope not. You know, like, that. it's just we have, we have different parts doing different things. So... What that means practically in, in this context is if you see some tradition here at Grace Fellowship, something we do every week or even just regularly, and, and it seems strange to you or biblically inappropriate or, or dangerous or whatever, please bring it up. Please come and talk to me about it. Please come and talk to any one of the other elders about it. It's okay if it sounds like it's really weird, or if you're the only one wondering about it, perhaps you're the person God is using to, to pull out one of those uh, unhelpful traditions or replace it with God's word. One person who I think does this really well here is Dan Fiala. Where is he this morning? He's hiding. There he is. Okay. I asked Dan if I could sing him out, and he was mostly okay with it. So here we go. Uh, Dan and I serve on the church shepherding team together, but Dan and I think very differently. Okay. I prefer precision and concrete plans. Dan prefers brainstorming and abstract ideas. Both of those are really useful. We just look at it differently. I tend to operate linearly. I like to make a list and just do the next thing on the list. Dan likes to operate spontaneously and do what seems best in the need of the moment. So I'm just going down my list, and he's over here going, okay, what can we do? Let's do this and this and this and this, and let's do that. That will help the most people. I'm like, we're not there yet. Hold on. Okay. I will emphasize things when we talk like Bible study and discipleship. Those are things that are really valuable to me. Dan emphasizes things like prayer and worship. Now, one of those isn't weighted against the other in Scripture. They're all valuable. We just think about the other things in different ways. And I could go on. And let me tell you, these, these differences between Dan and I have led to conflict in the past. But I've noticed something strange and unexpected over these years laboring alongside of Dan. And that is this. 
every time I spend time talking with Dan, I walk away with a broader understanding of the Lord and what he's doing in people's lives, especially in this church. For example, just a couple weeks ago, I shared with the shepherding team a concern in the church that I'd spent many hours trying to figure out, but I simply couldn't figure out how to approach it. It just didn't seem to fit right. I didn't know how to communicate what I wanted to communicate. And then Dan spoke up, and it was simply brilliant. It was exactly what we needed to do next. But what blew my mind was he arrived at that conclusion completely non-linearly. Okay? Like, I, the reason I couldn't figure out the problem is that I, it, I, was, I was just trying to go down here saying, we've got to do this and this and this and this. And, and I'm getting to the end. I'm like, it won't work. I just don't know what to do. And Dan's like, well, over here, poof, there it is. I was like, how did you do that? That wasn't even on my list. And, and that's just how God made him. He was able to see the need of that. And, and, and I share all that about Dan, friends, because Dan has confessed to me that he can feel like something of an oddball here at Grace Fellowship. He, he can be tempted to think that because he's thinking about or emphasizing things differently than the elder or elders are, then it must be wrong and he should just drop it. May it never be. That's our application right now. Don't just drop it if you think it sounds weird. Maybe, I'm sure what Jesus said to the Pharisees sounded really weird and offensive, but it's exactly what they needed. And I need Dan in my life. And, you know, he needs me. And we all need one another. That's, that's what we need to do. Dan is just the type of guy who will bring up the tradition that I've gotten quite used to and say, why are we doing that? And I need all of you to be doing that if this church is going to succeed. Otherwise, you know, 50 years from now, if we're lucky, People will be like, hey, you remember about Grace Fellowship? They used to be here. Oh, yeah, what happened to them? Oh, they just went off really weird, kind of got off in their own traditions, stopped welcoming people into their lives, really stopped serving God. It's tragic. I hear Peter Cole is preaching in another church now. You know, like, and, and so I don't want that to be our epitaph, right? I, I, I want us, I, I mean, it's fine if Peter wants to preach somewhere, but like, I, I want us to be remembered for a church that focuses on God's word and isn't just, isn't just another tragedy of a church that, that, that was like a, a spark lit a flame, and then burned out really quickly. But we're always, every church, no matter how big, is in danger of that. So, would you bring up your weird ideas to me and to the other elders? Would you question my weird ideas? Would you help me celebrate the diversity that God has given us here at Grace Fellowship? Let's put traditions in their place. Third, third application. I promise you the second, the last point in your outline is much shorter than this. Okay, Third application, let's, let's examine our existing traditions. Okay, this, it's almost too obvious to say, right? Like, that's kind of the point. And, and I almost didn't put it in there because I'm like, oh, well, everybody will just start thinking about traditions and throw it out there. But sometimes it's really hard to figure out what your traditions are. It's almost like asking the fish to describe the water it's swimming in. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? I don't even see it. It's just, it's just my life. This is how I operate. And yet Jesus says many such things you do. Right? So, so it's not going to be like just one little thing in our lives when it comes up. It's going to be a lot of things. So we've got to examine these. So here are a few things that I've heard people in our church or our, our contemporary Christian culture talk about. I'm going to name four just to get, just to get the, the wheels spinning. And then in your small groups today, I would love for you guys to talk about this more. Okay? So here are four things that I think are, are generally based more in tradition than in God's word. Number one, dating. What is the correct way for Christians to date? Chances are, when I ask that question, the, the, you, you either think, well, here's what I did, maybe if you're married, and you say, well, that's, that's, that worked, obviously. Look, I'm married, yay. Or 
Or what you do is you look around at the other Christians you know who have dated and say, oh, i got to do it like that. But do you realize what that is? That's you looking for a tradition to follow. You're immediately going straight to traditions rather than saying, well, what does God's word say about the principles of dating? Number two, worship. Okay, here's a loaded one. Is our worship style biblical? What about the church down the street who does the worship very differently than we do? With a different, different instruments, different styles? Would it be inappropriate, would it be appropriate or inappropriate for, for Allie to get up here and lead us in a hip-hop song next Sunday? I don't think we've ever done that at Grace Fellowship. But what, we would immediately have an opinion on that, wouldn't we? What if we sung a song in Spanish? Or in Farsi? What if we sung everything a cappella for a week? Does musical skill matter for the worship leaders? If we get someone up here who can, who can maybe find a G chord once in a while and play it, what, is that okay for them to lead? Or do we have in our minds a certain level of skill? Just you know, it's, just, it's just somewhat, you know, it's, it's objective, right? It's just some level of skill that everybody has to attain before they lead worship. These types of questions we usually base on our traditions. Don't underestimate how much your preconceived notions of what worship is, is your answer to those questions. Number three, retirement. What does God have to say about retirement? Let's say that you are, you are 65 or 66 or 67 or whatever it is now, and you retire. How does it affect what you do 9 to 5 from then on? Now what do you do? How do you think about it? How do you think about time with family? How do you think about time in your church? Friends, I submit that that the, this issue of retirement is one of the most entrenched traditions in contemporary Christian culture, and it's often based very, very little on what the Bible has to say. We just like to look around and be like, that person's going on vacation. I should do that too. Or this person's serving in this way. I got to do it just like that. I think it's so tempting, and it's very dangerous. Number four, last one, discipleship. When I say the word discipleship, what comes to mind? For some of you, you immediately picture uh, a couple people meeting at Starbucks and talking about their sin struggles, right? That's discipleship. Or could discipleship be a group of people singing songs of praise around a campfire? What about praying alone in your room? Is that, is that discipleship? Does that count? What does Jesus actually say about it versus what have we just been told from our elders? Now, I unfortunately don't have time to address all those things right now. Feel free to address them in your small groups. But perhaps these questions will spur you to think about other traditions and start making you wonder, what are the weird things we do? And then bring them up. Let's talk about them. Okay, so Jesus has now addressed the first accusation from the Pharisees, that his disciples are not walking according to the tradition of the elders. But there is still a second accusation, right? That his disciples are defiling themselves by eating with unwashed hands. And it's to that question that Jesus now turns. Let's turn there as well. Verses 14 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, there, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes out, I'm sorry, what goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the second accusation was that Jesus' disciples were defiling themselves by eating with unwashed hands. In response, Jesus calls the crowds together and says, listen up, this is important, try to understand it. It's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but rather what comes out. That's all the explanation he seems to give the crowds. But a little later, he's in a house with his disciples, and they ask about it. After some initial disappointment that they don't quite get it, Jesus elaborates with a simple biology lesson in verse 19. In short, food goes into your stomach and then, well, out into the ancient equivalent of a toilet. Okay? It's just part of how God made life to work. It doesn't defile you. It's not pretty, but it doesn't defile you. Rather, Jesus says, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. Unless we think that he's talking about that ancient toilet again, he clarifies for us in verses 21 through 23 he said it's from within, from the heart of a man that defiles him. Now, Jesus here is not talking exclusively about the organ in your chest that pumps blood. In the scriptures, the heart was symbolic for all that made a person what he is. It's one's character, his will, his desires, his passions, his dreams. And what Jesus says is in a man's heart is not at all pretty. Look at that list. I'm going to read that list again because I, 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 I find it very offensive. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. We could spend multiple sermons just going through that list. Maybe we should. I don't know. If it's a weird idea, talk to Peter. Okay, so Jesus says that all those evil things in that list are what defile a person. Now, one of us may object and say, but wait a minute. I didn't do all those things. I didn't murder. I'm not a murderer. That may well be. But Jesus says that out of the same evil heart from which murder comes also spews forth envy, lies, slander, and all that stuff. If anyone here did not see at least several things, several of those things on that list, on display in your life in this past week, maybe even on Christmas Day, then you are a far, far better person than I am. I saw it coming out left and right. I'm preparing this sermon on Christmas Day. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like it's everywhere. So what does all that mean, and what do we do with it, okay? Jesus says very plainly to the crowds that this is something important to hear and understand. Let's make sure we do. So let's review once more. The second accusation, accusation of the Pharisees was that Jesus' disciples were defiling themselves by eating with unwashed hands, okay? So Jesus' response is that the problem doesn't lie at all with your unwashed hands. The problem is that even if your hands are in some way defiled, it, it would just, it would just, you know, you'd eat it and it would just come back at, right back out. The real problem is with our hearts. The problem with hearts is that they are the source of the defilement. The problem with hearts is that they're evil. This is not a Disney movie here, friends. This is not follow your heart. It's get as far away from your heart as you can. Like, take it out. It's nasty. You die. But like, you know, it's, it's, it's wicked. It's evil. It's all pouring out. See, the problem the Pharisees have with Jesus here is that they think that he's lowered the bar by, by saying, look, Jesus, your, your disciples are not washing as they should before they eat. Jesus actually has raised the bar 
higher than anyone else could ever, ever, ever achieve. If you could just wash your hands and be holy, then great, do it. Let's everybody do it. We'll have a big old church hand-washing celebration. And look, why preach God's word? We've washed our hands. We're clean. We're holy. Yay! Put that on the calendar. But Jesus says, you can't do that. You can't do that. The problem is inside you. It's your heart. It's your character. It's your desires. It's your dreams. It's your passions. The very things that make you you are the problem. You can't get rid of that. You can't wash that off. Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the crowds and his disciples that you can't just change a habit or a tradition to become holy. What you need is a brand new heart. What you need is a holy heart. Okay. Thanks, Jesus. Good to know. I don't know where to get one of those. Okay, I missed the flash sale on Amazon. Or I get the discount one at Walmart, but they were out. Okay, I, they don't have holy hearts for sale. So how do you get one? Well, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that Jesus does not answer that question in this passage. The good news is that God, speaking through Ezekiel, answered that question 600 years before Jesus even set foot on the planet. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. Friends, Ezekiel tells us that our, our new heart and our new spirit come from God himself. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Like, it's sure not going to come from us. we got nothing to offer there. But if we want holiness, a holy heart and a holy spirit, it must come from God. And this is the very need that leads us to celebrate Christmas 2,000 years after that first event. Jesus, God's son, came to earth as a baby. He lived a perfect, holy life and then died in our place so that our sin, that's the wickedness in our hearts, would be forgiven. But he did more than that too. When he left, he sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell all those who believe in him. And in that way, Ezekiel's promise was fulfilled. For those who call upon the name of Jesus, we receive a new spirit, a holy spirit, and we receive a new holy heart. Because of this, Christians are now fully acceptable, holy, and loved by God, and our hearts are now inclined toward God rather than in opposition to God. We are no longer defiled. We have God's spirit in us. We have brand new hearts personally placed there by our loving, holy God. So application. Friends, if you have asked Jesus for a new heart, then your application is to rejoice. Rejoice. May the joy of knowing that God has given you a new heart far surpass the joy of the greatest gift that you opened on Friday morning. And, in a moment, you can demonstrate your joy by singing passionately our last song. It's a great tradition to close with a song, isn't it? But if you are here and have not called Jesus your king, if you have not asked him for a new heart, and, and, and you're, you're sitting there wondering, are, is that list really true of me? Well, it is. But you can ask him to give you a new heart right now. There's nothing keeping you from it. We, we, we can sometimes think that, that we need to wait and fix our heart so we can come to Jesus. But Jesus is actually waiting for us to come to him so he can fix our hearts. Yes, let him do that wonderful work if you don't know him in that way yet. 
and you can begin this new year with a new heart full of thankfulness and praise to God. If you do, 2016 will be the most joy-filled year of your life. And that will be a tradition worth celebrating for many years to come. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came and, and shook us up. God, we have many traditions, many things we love that make us look good. And God, we, we want to hide behind those things. Even if we don't consciously try to do it, it's what we do again and again. We just want to look good. We want to be holy. And God, so often we don't want you to do it for us. But God, Jesus makes it so plain to us in this reading from your word this morning that we are hopeless without it, without intervention, without your spirit coming in and changing us, without a new heart from you. God, would you change us and continue changing us even as we sing this closing song. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.